Hello and welcome to the Baby Giants Investing Podcast. Join us as we chat about the weird and wild world of small cap investing, all while searching for the precious few fast-growing businesses that have a shot at becoming industry giants. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is strictly not intended as financial advice. Any opinions of general nature and do not take into account your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Securities mentioned are for illustration purposes only and this podcast should not influence investment decisions. You should read the relevant PDS and consider speaking to a financial advisor before making investment decisions. Past performance is no indicator of future returns. Podcast guests and their clients may hold positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. We're coming from the tail end of earnings season on a leap year day here. G'day, mates. G'day, g'day. Yeah, it's uh, 29th. 29th, yeah. We've got some uh, good news to start off with. I'll chuck out a couple. I thought the first commercial moon mission was pretty cool. So Odysseus moon mission, first commercial lander to land on the moon, opening up the new age of space exploration, I feel like. Didn't uh, the Japanese do something recently? Yeah, but Japan's a country, not a company. Oh, sorry. Okay, you're right. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. But yeah, Good so it's know. the first commercial one. It's the first commercial one, which I think is cool. That is very cool. It didn't get much coverage, did it? Not that much, really. It got coverage from like the few like pro-progress, whatever, techno-optimist sources, yeah. <laughs> but not not like a widespread thing. I mean, I guess it's like old news now. It's kind of like, like a Falcon yeah. 9 launch or something. Like no one cares anymore that you know rockets can go up and land. Not nearly as interesting as a drunken politician lying on the streets of Canberra, I guess. So. <laughs> relegated to the back back pages of the newspaper. Yeah, pretty much. I got one as well. There's a study that came out basically showed that, you know, one of the most effective ways of treating depression is actually dance. So I think that's good news because uh, it's probably something that some people have intuited for a long time. But, you know, dance is something that's like available for everyone for no cost. You don't need to go to a doctor for it. And at the same time, you know, it's not going to it's not going to have, you know, withdrawal or you're not going to create a dependency on it. That's that's true. That's true, Claude. But the, I think my dancing should come with a health warning because it, <laughs> it might be good for me, but it's probably not good for any observer. <laughs> well, this is an interesting there. thing is that actually makes you think how much it, for many people in the population, they probably feel like they can access SSRIs, which then take a month to like have an effect more easily than they can access a safe and comfortable place for them to dance. So I think, you know, that probably gives us a hint as a society of how we could be our happier society that, you know, there needs to be outlets for people to do that. So anyway, you can find that. So if anyone's feeling down and, and wants to do something positive for themselves, uh, I definitely think that the science shows that, you know, go dance, go dance. Dancing. Dance like Put no one is watching. some music videos on the TV. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Don't, you can dance at home when no one's watching. Like, maybe that's the best way to do it. Mm. I definitely dance with my kids all the time. So, yeah, that's there you have it. Yeah. One thing I saw was the world's largest EV battery maker is going to cut costs in half by mid-2024. So, that could change the economics, I suppose, on, on battery su- supply and cost. Pretty cool. Move in the right direction. I actually haven't dug into that beyond the headline, to be honest, but it yeah. did catch my eye. I, I wonder, is that a scale thing? Is it a lower input cost thing? I'm not... I'm not too sure, but it's good. It's good news. There's something in the US, right? There's, a, I think it's BYD are launching an $11,000 electric car, which is like wow. a crazy price point for an electric car, which I think uses a slightly different battery formulation. I could be wrong. I know that BYD is experimenting with sodium-based, which we talked about on a pod yeah, yeah. a while ago. But yeah, it's a weird time in the US with EVs because like, isn't Tesla only expecting 
like 11% growth or something. It's talking mm, about like yep, an off cycle year, right. but we're kind of going from this early adopter to the mainstream. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. Chinese automakers are just cleaning up because they've just mm. got such vast amounts of cars that are produced there. Yep. I guess they've got so much scale and probably some subsidies and whatever else. But yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one for the transition, right? Because you've at the same time got a lot of geopolitical tensions. Do people want to be dependent on China for something as important as transportation? That's so interesting. Do you know what's exploded around my area? I don't know about yours or, or listeners, but e-bikes are like there were a, i remember i had a guy of yours a couple of years ago called it was like such a yeah, you know i love it it was yeah, great. great it was so good like the assisted pedaling and everything. anyway and then it's just like lately it's just like everywhere i go i just see them everywhere it's so the golden age up. of e-bikes like before there's a backlash before there's too much backlash and like the the motorists start trying to run you down again yeah yeah. (laughs) they're virtually motorbikes in a way there's a lot of speed you can get on those things right it's just so delightful like because living in bronte and then getting into whatever it was surrey hills where we were it's so hilly and so like you it was either my old way of doing it was to ride a normal bike to Bondi Junction and then catch a train, which is like a metal tube of infection. And so it was even, this is even before COVID, by the way, because I have, you know, I, I, I have a problem fighting off diseases. So I started getting, I got an e-bike and started riding through Centennial Park. Was it? Yeah. And it was so much nicer way to get to work. Yeah. I like them a lot better than the e-scooters. Those things feel like collarbone breaking machines to me. <laughs> They're a lot more stable. I got a friend who's um, French and he said there's plenty of kids in France that are missing the front of their teeth because parents will use the e-scooter and put the kid in front of them and like, oh. you know, like they go right into the handlebar. It's like it's in the you know it's one of those things that's like a known risk when you yeah. get on with your kid. My kid was riding his proper bike like his little bike and he had a mad crash the other day and he's he's now minus one front tooth. Oof. So, yeah, my mate worked in um, ER in New Zealand and when they all the e-scooters came out and it was like majority of Friday night accidents with uh, probably half <laughs> Alcohol and e-scooters. Like, and yeah. e-scooters, yeah. And they'd just be like horrific, you know, like bones out of arms. <laughs> oh, and man. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. No, I like the I like the e-bikes. I saw a kid on an e-bike and I'm like, kind of like, I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm a grumpy old man about it. I'm like, you should still be pedaling like, at your age. <laughs> <laughs> like, like the like seven-year-old. <laughs> joints age. age comes for us all. <laughs> one other one that I thought was good news is uh, Neuralink's implant can move commuter, computer mouse by thinking. And I guess I dug into a little bit more on Neuralink. I do think that they're doing some impressive stuff. They seem to have solved the brain scarring issue by shrinking the... I guess the transistors, the, the connections so that they're smaller than the gap between two neurons, apparently, wow. which means that they don't scar. Yeah, it was, it was um, from someone who's kind of a, some of the inside story of Musk and his actually impressive engineering or ability to corral other engineers to do impressive feats. Mm. Um, it does sound like there's something a bit more there than I'd have been thinking about before. So, yeah, it's yeah, interesting. pretty cool. Let's get into some news. What are, what's, uh, what's caught your eyes, Claude and others, over the last? Well, we just had inflation numbers come out as well. So I thought those were kind of positive for Australia. It seems like not as high in most areas, but there are some areas that are still really, really ripping. So a lot of services, inflation's high. Insurance inflation is 16.3%. And yeah, a lot of other, a lot of other, you know, rents are still 7%. Quite a few services stuff is still pretty high. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. I wonder if the insurers are trying to sort of compensate for losses in bond portfolios. I I bet you that's got an angle. I'm shooting from the hip here. It just occurred to me while you were talking, but I think I think when it comes to inflation, the, the 
my current thinking with it is, and I always think this is such navel gazing when it comes to inflation because who really knows, but we we had the double pronged sort of impact of a lot of sort of extra money sloshing around and also supply chain issues and it got, you know, up to 7% or so. But the supply chain issues were always going to resolve themselves. Like, you know, there's no cure for high prices like high prices and that they were all always temporary kind of things. And we've seen things improve on the basis of that, but it's the, it's the, what do they call it? The wage price spiral thing now, because services is different, right? Like, you know, when, uh, and, and what is the Australian economy? 70% services based. It's, I think that part's going to prove to be a lot stickier because even when you account, I know people like to say, well, over the last 12 months, wage growth has actually been more than, than inflation. It's like, well, that is true. But over a cumulative like five year period, most people are still well behind. And especially when you look at the distribution of where the wage growth has come from, a lot of people are really well behind and will demand and probably have a good case for pay rises, which, you know, someone's higher wage is someone else's higher cost. And yeah. a higher cost if, wage, is if wages are a height of inflation, that is inflationary. I think the that there, way, I think it's there's going to be more wage inflation, but I think that there are some people that are massively overpaid, and hopefully for society, those people aren't going to be getting pay rises. But there's two like there are the people that are in the people that are in sort of high skilled professions where there are shortages. I think at any given time, those those kind of people can. You're in a position to to raise, you know, get higher wages almost constantly. But except for those exceptions, I think there's a huge class of people who have been doing jobs like driving buses, teaching children, nursing, aged care. And those people need a massive raise. Anything that puts you on the front line of like, you're going to get COVID three times a year is going to have people dropping out because older people who are 60 and might be on the edge of retirement, it makes no sense for them to try and brave two or three COVID infections a year which could wipe years off their life just to keep working for another year or two. Like if you're 60 or 62 and you actually can retire and you're teaching a kindergarten class, man, it makes to- it makes sense to retire. Like that's the I hear best what thing. Sa- I hear what you're saying you to totally. Do. And I, I agree with you. It's like the, the, the way things are allocated aren't always fair. But, it, you know, at a deeper level, it, you could sort of argue it's going to be determined by the market. If you've got a skill set that can demand a much higher salary, you'll get it if you can, whether it's right or fair. Yeah, it just, but that's, it what just I'm, is. that's what I'm and, saying is that's the market will push up the wages for like yeah. nurses and that kind of stuff. It has to. That's why collective bargaining and, and unions are actually I'm a big fan of that kind of stuff because there's much, you, you kind of, that's where the power lies <laughs> in those kinds of industries. You need sort of to sort of cooperate for it. But that, yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you, you make a totally valid point, but the point is, is that unions and, and employee representatives will Will now be able to well very have been for a while now be able to present a very reasonable case for hey we need a pay rise we don't have enough people doing the jobs here oh, everyone's cost of living has gone up you know and then and so on and so forth and it's just I I think it's I just I was just going to say the two to three percent range I think is a long way off is long way off yeah. even though it may still continue to moderate for a bit the thing I the thing I like about unions is that they can get the actual pay rises that are needed. And that's really important. The thing that I think hampers a bit of society about unions sometimes is that in other industries where actually pay rises are not needed, the unions can still get a pay rise. So it's sometimes- There's always going to be a natural tension. And it's a good thing. There's always going to be a natural tension. I could not have less of an affinity with like the union vibe kind of people that I meet sometimes in Canberra. But at the same time, I 100% think unions are a social good and want to have- live in a country that has strong unions like absolutely well you do if you're a factory worker i'll say that much they just hate me because i'm a capitalist anyway 
Yeah. <laughs> two things can be true. Two two things can be true at the same time. Is all I'll say. Yeah, I think unions can't like if you look at the unions in like Scandinavia and stuff. It's all about how how well they're run and whether they like become politicized totally. or not, or you know, just act for their members and stuff. It's any institution. Yeah. Cool. What and yeah. So I guess that any thoughts on inflation? I don't yeah, know, I'll, I'll bring it back service to the- inflation beneficiaries. I'll bring it back to the markets. I think the the markets seem, at least to me, to be very much pricing in more, more uh, a fall in in interest rates. Yeah, and I, I think the the decision makers are going to be in this really difficult position of if inflation does prove to be sticky, yet we are sort of having anemic growth or even the potential for degrowth for that horrible word. That there's, the, I think there's a potential sort of stagflation kind of scenario there, and 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 eventually when push comes to shove. They will yield on interest rates before they yield on the fight for inflation. And I think the market sees that. And I think, I don't know. So I had a discussion the other day with like the Magnificent Seven, right? But you actually look at those stocks, they're on PEs of like between 25 and I think even Tesla's like 44. Now that's high. And we can, I don't want to get into the debates of those particular companies, but WiseTech, Zero, Altium, like they're all Prometicus, they're all on PEs of more than a hundred, right? And yeah. and it's not that that they are all outstanding, you know, best in breed companies. I love them all, but the the valuations are really stretched, and I, I feel as though there, there needs to be some component of that which is an interest rate oriented kind of calculus because how else does it make sense? Yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense because everyone's expecting rates just to come back down, right? Yeah. And yeah, it's just if they don't. And I, I think that we tend to think in like extreme scenarios, but it can just be a scenario where it comes down a bit, but not that much and rates come down a bit, but not that much. Like we, mm. we tend to think of it so really binary. Everyone's like, oh, it'll go back to normal. So then rates go back to like 1% or something. Mm. But they could just stay, you know, at three percent for like a long time, and that. Gets and this like- is normal. One percent's not normal. Like yeah. I think that's the other perturbation that's sort of out there. It's like no, no, no. Like in fact, normal's higher than where we're at. I would say over the longer term. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's a question that we can we can take, and then we can lead it into a little small cap stock dis- discussion as well. What do you guys think if it does have, you know, a little bit higher than usual as it used to be like three and a half percent kind of inflation, it just sticks around there, bounce around there for a while. What are the implications for property prices in this? Because it was really interesting the other day, Matt, we were, we were chatting with a friend and, and he was saying that right now, say in Brisbane, and this has got me looking at one bedroom apartments in Brisbane, basically the economics for building a one bedroom apartment don't, don't make sense anymore. Mm. But just because like the materials and the labor and everything, it's just not enough. But then at the same time, a rundown old Brisbane apartments yielding easy 5% rental yield, right? Which is actually really? more- 5%? Yeah. Yeah. So if you've got cash- like this is why I'm thinking about it because if you got cash, you could put it in a you know a one bedroom apartment in Brisbane. I mean, hopefully, it doesn't go underwater, but you know, and potentially get a better yield if it was just like a long term kind of thing. So my que- but and also you've surely- changed, man. You've changed. If you're getting excited by a five percent rental yield, who are you? Where's Claude? what do you mean? <laughs> do you, don't you remember in 2016 I bought a house like yeah, ages that was, before that you guys? Was, that was, there was a non financial component to that. Like it's that true, was a, that was true. a lifestyle sort of oriented decision. I, I, I'm not saying it like for some people great, but I'm 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 a little surprised with you because you know you like your small caps, you like a bit of spice, you've had some yeah, pretty good long term returns, and then you, and then you, you look yeah. you look you turn your head to the left and it's like oh there's a there's a Brisbane one bedroom unit yielding five percent. I'm all in. Like <laughs> what? Well. I feel like, you know, if you spice that up with like 50% leverage and it's yielding 5%, it depends, okay. I guess, what you can borrow at. Okay. But I get you. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. And I probably should have just followed you into Bitcoin, mate. So 
you know, my bad on that one. Not too late. (laughs) And anyway, I diverge. But yeah, the point is, if we do have this inflationary environment, is there something in that that will finally pop the, the Australia property bubble? Or does, in fact, it just in some ways make it persist because it, the construction costs and all that kind of thing go up. I think persist. I don't think it pops it. I, I think it would pop it if it got really high and you had to really stomp with the interest rates. But I think that what you're talking about there, I don't, I don't yeah, see exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. If it's got an un- the risk to the pop was uncontrolled inflation, very high interest rate rise, people can't afford it, mass selling, right? That's mm-hmm. the risk of the pop in my view. And then slightly higher than normal inflation basically just will will support it. So I'm not saying like apartments in Canberra are terrible. Like it's like a 3% yield, but in the right place, like I feel like there's property that's still okay. That's gross yield too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, the uh, Canberra apartments are a disaster. They also have an additional tax for investors. Like, Dude, plenty of people in Sydney are looking at envy with yields in Canberra. I'll say that. Much. Oh man. I No, Canberra's like harsh on investors. They actually really want people to they actually are a good model for what other places should do Mm. to make it more likely that everybody can afford an apartment basically Mm. but yeah somehow they're still too expensive (laughs) i agree with i agree with both of you i don't think nothing pops this until there's some significant degree of forced selling that's it at the same time i don't i don't think the gains of the past you can extrapolate to the future which is my concern with a lot of investors is that that's the base that's the investment thesis they extrapolate past capital gains and rationalize their decisions based on that the the government it, this is this is too big to fail in every definition as the perfect use of that term in australia so I, I think even someone who is bearish on property i i'm acknowledging that everything will be thrown at this thing to prevent it from falling. And I think best case scenario for him here is, you know, I think Alan Kohler made the point of just sideways growth for 20 years or something to sort of bring bring affordability back. That's probably the best case. But if there is ever, I think the key economic figure to watch would be unemployment. If that ever got high or, or wage, or just back to your point on inflation, if wage growth versus inflation, there was a real disconnect in in those two, that's when you start getting forced selling and that's when things get interesting. But it's, it's the less likely scenario at this point. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, New Zealand, you're seeing a bit big fall in, in some markets, but they also had a lot more supply because they kind of fixed some of their supply who'd problems. Have, who'd so. have thought that? More supply. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. so, so bringing it back around to a small cap then, we had an article on A Rich Life written by Matt Brazier, who you know long-term readers will know is, is an absolute cracker of a stock picker. And he, following up on one of his holdings, McGrath, the little uh, real estate agent, I bet you love him, Andrew. And <laughs> quality, salt of the earth, people. <laughs> quality, um, not just helping the community. Go on. And it's a good, like, it's a decent little thesis, my view. Now, I'm not saying, like, this has been around for a while, by the way, and the stock has come up. This idea that there was an undervaluation of the rental roles that was on their book. You know, that is like the rental management firm where they're just clipping the ticket like 8% of the rent or something. Like, ideally, like quite a good business. And I think, I guess this was trap value. <laughs> for Ferraris don't pay for themselves, Claude. <laughs> yeah. This was like trapped value for a little while. But actually what you've seen in the last results is they're like, they're selling these rental roles now, which obviously is a bit of a one-off sugar hit, but it is a way to actually, you know, get money out of them. And then the other thing they're doing is they are... Turning more, turning it more into a franchise organization. So an increasing percentage of the profits are coming from franchising. And the effect of this essentially is to minimize, I guess, or, or reduce the exposure of McGrath, the company, to the, I guess, property cycle and volumes and all that kind of stuff. 
in the uptimes, the franchisees will get some of that sweet, sweet profit or more of it. But in the downsides, like, you know, it's the franchisee who gets into into distress and McGrath kind of can can bump along. And that's really important when you have a company that's like, you know, has basically, it was years ago, I remember writing an article about it, you know, years ago, it was super overvalued when it floated. It was just like this whole thing. It's not that good a business. It came all the way down to 17 cents. And, you know, there's, there are, I think, you know, some anyone can like just Google, but like maybe, maybe not the most stable management you've ever seen either. And so ultimately, it's a bit of a turnaround play. But in the turnaround play, if you start attacking that downside, if you start attacking and, and reducing the thing that like what kills this kind of thing, that's actually where you can get upside in a turnaround play when something is sort of priced for being a bit a real risk of dying kind of thing. So because of that, if you take out that downside, then it's quite possible for the market to start looking at it and saying, it, you know, it's not that expensive, basically. Essentially, what your situation is, the net asset estimate on the in the company is like roughly the share price. So obviously, it's a pretty simple kind of investing. But when you say, look, the downside of this is minimal. And by the way, this investing doesn't always work. So I'm not trying to say it's fail safe. But one style is, look, the downside's super minimal in this if I'm willing to just sit in there. So if I hold it, I've got a potentially quite good upside, but my range of outcomes is almost certainly positive. And I feel like that's the kind of thesis for for McGrath. And it's not like your long-term compounder, multi-year, multi-bagger, it's going to change your life kind of thing, but it could be an, an undervalued small cap. Um, I don't own shares in it. And of course, this is an advice, but that's that's sort of the idea. And that's the ex- I'm using it as an exemplar to illustrate, I guess, a type of investing thesis, which quite often can work. So yeah, that that article of Matt's is on the on the website. But yeah, that that's one little small cap that I wouldn't thought I would be uh, talking positively about anytime soon. But yeah, it could actually be interesting. Yeah, you make a good point. I mean, there's there's I mean, I've mentioned it too many times for it to be uh, new. But the the asymmetry angle of of investing is basically my whole deal. <laughs> or, you yeah, know, yeah. whatever way you want to play with it, I think that if you don't have a, a positive skew to the upside, you can't know the future. But if, if it's sort of like the dice are dice need to be a bit loaded, right? Otherwise, yeah, yeah it's, that's it's the idea. Point. So I, I love that. Well, this is the smallest point in the world, but I'll make it anyway. I did notice just while you're talking, looking through their slide deck, they're still opening offices. And my thought is, where in Australia, where you, can you walk down any sort of main street and not bump into eight different real estate agents? Like, what suburbs? Are they opening new offices in? I'm not surprised in New South Wales. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I guess there's one like next to Ayers Rock or something, or <laughs> no? Because like there's 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 if there's like you know one Blue roof, thank on, you very much. I can throw a rock right now, and I'm going to hit a, the roof of a real estate agent. Like, <laughs> it's just there everywhere. And what else? Anything else catching your eye in, in earnings season? I thought I'd mention one that I quite like, which is Objective Corporation. Now, their results didn't shoot the lights out by any means. But at the same time, I think that now is an interesting time. So what they did is they changed their accounting treatment to start capitalizing about half of their R&D rather than all of it, that, that, which is what they used to do. Now, this makes a unsustainable and one-off and, and not sort of not real increase in their profit before tax. So you take the 50% gain in profit before tax and don't even think about it. But the point is, even if you back out for all of that stuff, which, by the way, they make it easy to do and which they warned that they were going to have to do and which they said that the auditors made them do. So there's no, like, I don't think it's it's cheap point scoring to have a crack at them for, like, doing this change, which also just brings them in line with, uh, like, other similar software companies. But at the same time, 
the underlying growth was still there. So it was still it was still kind of good. And at the same time, I just think now, yes, okay, on these results, and everyone's going to be like, oh, yeah, but they changed the accounting, so it's not even special or whatever. But like, really, they're just putting it in line with others. Basic earnings or per share of about 17 cents. Double that, you get 34 cents. At $13, divide it by 34 cents, and you get like 38 as a PE ratio. And your guess is as good as mine what the underlying growth is. But they think that they can do 15% sort of ARR growth is kind of where they're underlying growth target is now they might come in a bit below that but at the same time i think we should see over the next few years um ebit margins creep up a little bit certainly that's what they're aiming for so that should bump your profit growth above 10 percent. call it somewhere between 10 and 20 percent well you've got a stock uh, a software stock with you know honest competent management i own shares in objective corp have for a long time bought some recently for the results and yeah ultimately i just think that that's that's kind of ticks a lot of the boxes i looked for honest competent management growing um sticky so- sticky software yeah and so this is for me like ideally it is one that i could just buy and hold for a long time and also the other thing is you got to look at that market situation now one consistent seller has been uh, i think his surname's fisher a former director who's been around mr fisher for a really long time marlene is his holding company he's been selling way back since you know the objective share price was like 20 cents so he's always basically, he, he started with a big chunk of the company and he's always been exiting. And yeah, he's still got a little while to go to exit. But I, and I have no idea, I've not checked, but I wouldn't su- be surprised if the volume that came through, the unusual volume that came through just before earnings that pushed it down to $11. Like, I mean, gut feel is that's most likely to be Marlene because that's, you know, the big holder that has historically been selling someone could check that if there's any brokers out there if you can flick me a message and let me know what 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 that sell-off was that'd be great but yeah ultimately i could be wrong about that but i just feel like that's kind of a setup i'm looking for if so like you know some guy's been selling forever it's probably not like that much of a insight that he continues to sell and meanwhile it ticks some of those other heuristic boxes so yeah happy holder of that one one of my larger holdings at this point so and and hopeful that it is a long-term compounder basically well it, it is I mean, uh, up well, to this point. That's what it's point, been so far. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the point I want to make with objective cost, when, in, when you're in small caps, you know, it's easy to sort of gravitate into companies that are a much earlier stage in terms of pivoting to a, a profitable, viable, cash flow positive situation. But with Objective Corp, it's one of those stocks that you could go back 10 years and it was profitable, was paying a dividend, had a huge insight in ownership. But like all the things, in, like a, a good thrust of the buy case that you would make now, I think was largely true back then. So it wasn't as though it was, this will be a great, and it has been a great investment over the last 10 years, but b- because I think they will transition to profitability and they will scale well and they will do all of this. They, w- they were kind of, this was one of those ones that was hiding in plain sight in the fact that it was just like, well, we're doing it. Like, what, what are you not entertained? What, what else do you want us to do? Obviously, there's a degree of magnitude and how much that growth continues in the rest of it, but it is a very different proposition to a lot of small caps where we might sort of be looking and waiting for that inflection point of profitability. It's like, no, nah, it's blown well past it. You know, this, this is, this was a, much lower risk reward proposition than others, uh, equivalent, similar ones in in that space at the time. What, what do you think of the the growth cut? So they they're saying basically that it's going to return. What, what's the kind of yeah? What what are the suppressing points? As a proxy for underlying growth, I used their target of fifteen percent ARR growth, and then mm. kind of I would make in my head an adjustment down for the fact that 
for example, in this half, ARR growth was only 10%, not 15%, ergo below yeah. their target. And then I would make an adjustment a little bit back up in the sense that I think that there is some operating leverage coming through in the business. And so that's not on R&D. That continues to go up as a like but sort of stable percentage of revenue, but there's still a bit of operating leverage over the other costs, I think. So then I would you know bump the growth rate up a little bit from there. That could be too bullish, of course. And that's one of the areas where the, where the thesis could fail. Yeah. I think for me, it'll just come down to growth from here, right? So, you know, if, if the rev- you know, statutory revenue growth is 5% or whatever, if that was more the growth rate, then it's probably pretty expensive. It's more like, I guess it'd be like price is the most premium end or the top end of what you'd pay for something that's growing at that rate. Like there are companies that grow at that rate yeah. and are high quality. But then if it's growing 15%, I guess it's quite cheap. So that's probably like, it all comes down to that long, that growth rate over the next five, 10 years. Yeah. Probably, right? So they've just completed a transition to away from license fee style stuff, which is now finished. So statutory yeah. revenue really should go up more than like 5% from here. Like if it doesn't, then I'll be slightly concerned. Yeah. But, you know, that more of their revenue has gone recurring. And as that sort of project and license revenue falls off, then it, that's you've seen that slowing. But that should be done now. So, yeah, yeah that, that's an absolutely fair point. They've done really well. And I was, I was discussing the other day how hard it is selling to government clients, like, and how some companies manage to do it. And I guess they've gotten to a stage where they're well-known enough than government to become like the incumbent. Such a key point. A couple of years ago, I actually asked a question, which was a bit of a, a tough one. And, and, the, and the CEO said as much, but the question was, something along the lines of you know if you're losing them what when like what how does it happen when you lose a contract when you're tendering something and you don't win or whatever and he basically i can't remember the exact thing i think it's in one of my old articles but essentially he was saying well if they've lost the contract then that means they've failed to like be in there way before the contract even went to tender like the idea is they're supposed to be engaging with the person who's going to put out the tender to the content contract before the tenders even out there like that's where where i i guess you need to be in on the process like you're talking with them before the tender goes out and you you're just getting basically making sure you're completely ready for it and 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 that kind of thing i'm not exactly sure how that how it works but it's like the constant engagement and and having an idea of of where the puck is going i guess sounds like you know where it is it's not a matter of just you like oh, a new tender's out. Now I'm going to start thinking about it today. I think I think that's kind of where, and I have no idea how they do that, by the way, and, and I'm totally par- paraphrasing. Yeah. That was objective you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. kind of my understanding of it. It was like, I guess in a very, this is not what he said at all, but the way I took the answer was like, well, you got to, basically you got to shift your focus even far forward before the tender kind of even went out or he didn't say those yeah. words, but that's how I understood it. And that's like really interesting kind of, it shows just how difficult it, it can be, like how how long the sales process is in these in these industries. And I think that's a real disadvantage. You know, that's why a company like Prometicus is basically in a way better position than Objective because mm. it even though it does still have very long sales cycles itself, for smaller stuff, it can still move quicker, way quicker. Whereas I think it's probably super long for objective, even when it's just a local council they're selling to. Yeah, I think that that technology one have basically the same approach. They just know about yeah. they, they they do it. They're chatting to these government agents so much, so far ahead. And then by the time the tender comes, they've probably designed it thinking of like technology one or objective potentially, right? Like if you do enough of the groundwork. And so then if you're another company going for the tender, you're kind of like the patsy. 
<laughs> basically, yeah. right? You're going for something. They've already really kind of made a lot of their choice. Um, they still do the tender. I'm not saying it's completely biased, but they've got something in mind and they've tailored it. I live it. in Canberra. I see it all the time. Like half the job ads you see, like are job ads that they just have to put out and like within the department, they already know exactly. Yeah, or, exactly. Or worse, there are two people within the department frantically playing politics against each other to see which one of them have, are going to get it and miss the third candidate. They've got yeah. no chance. Yeah, it's just like that. It's like getting a job, right? Getting a job, the best way is to have like the friend recommend and they, they want you and then they put it up on Seek as well. But mm. if you're just going on Seek rather than through that warm referral, you've probably got a much worse chance. It reminds me of the um, nobody got fired for buying IBM line. Like, is yeah, it, well, that's the thing. When you look at it in the government context. It's And it's not to be disparaging in any way, but yeah. Look, I, I've, I'm, in a, I'm in a comfy position here. I just want to make a safe bet, right? And there's nothing safer than like when umpteen other departments and agencies you all sort of speak to regularly have all used it, recommended it. It's just, it's such a, a an easy sort of decision. So it's a great, a great competitive edge once once entrenched. 100%. Shall we move on then? What, what stock do you guys want to discuss next? Gosh, I don't, I don't, I'm not a- well, Let's do JB Hi-Fi, shall we? Yeah, tell us about JB. Yeah, all right. So JB Hi-Fi, yet another one of the retailers sort of on the rebound. I think, you know, that has been a real feature of these results. We've got JB up, we've got LaVisa up. There's more besides that, but they're two, two leaders that I guess we follow because they they do such a good job. Nick Scarley was up as well, which is considered another leader sort of in, in retail, one of the better operators. And yeah, so I guess... The, the the takeaway for me is I think when we came on the show a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about some of the early retail results and I was saying, oh, you know, one swallow does not make a summer, etc. And I guess like the point that I that I was I was thinking of touching on now is that now that we have had a a bunch more retailers come out, including, you know, the names I, I, I dropped there before think that i guess you know the retail comeback is on and perhaps that tells us an indication that we're not in any particular danger of of having too much of a slump in the near term i I don't know Mm. if you guys agree with that what do you think andrew i i I mean you you always see what you want to see and i i think any listener would know recently is that there's been dark clouds in in my thinking Uh, and that's a dangerous place to be because it usually doesn't pay to be pessimistic but I mean, I think it's everything was down at JB, right? Like it wasn't a great half. It was just that it was priced for even yeah. a worse scenario. And I think what enthused the market was this idea that we've sort of seen like for like sales growth of one point seven percent in in January, which is encouraging, right? Like, like things aren't getting worse. That's that's really nice to see. Yeah. The trouble you have with when when you've got very big retailers operating on retail kind of margins and that's like sales growth of one seven one point seven percent is definitely going in the right direction. Yeah, I should I, clarify what I said. It's not that retailers are, uh, are smashing it. It's just that they're doing better than what the fear was yes. previously, right? Like the, a lot the of these retailers were priced for like, oh, it's going to go down hard, guys. And to be fair, it's, it hasn't been the strongest numbers. Yeah, but, but nonetheless, better than expectations. It's an yeah, excellent exactly. point you made, and we we said it at the time. I, I I think that the there's two tricky parts to that. Is obviously sort of you don't want to be too early on that because things can always get bad. But I, one of the things I struggle with is that where I I do this all the time in both directions, where a growth invest a growth thesis becomes a value thesis, and then a yeah. value thesis becomes a growth thesis. So I, I buy JB Hi-Fi because the, the multiples just silly, and it's on probably trough multiples, and the things aren't great, but they're not as bad as the market thinks, and it's it's undervalued, so I'm going to buy it. But that's all good and well. But if that's your thesis, 
once it's corrected and shares have like done really well, I would say you either need to reformulate the thesis at this point, go actually, no, still the market underbakes the strength of, 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 the, of the consumer, or you close out your position. Again, that's not my style. I'm not, a, I'm not someone who's going to trade that, but I think you just need to be honest with yourself is if that was the reason I bought it and that has now played out, Unless I've got a way to, to yeah, sort of I'm definitely not chasing this one. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying people shouldn't. By the way, either I'm just saying if, if that was your starting point, then 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 now yeah. is no, a good I'm example right. of what you're talking about is like beacon lighting, right? So there's only yes. a handful of retailers we cover we cover at a rich life, and, and Raymond does most of that. But that's like another one that you know it's come up massively. Its sales were down. I mean, its profit was down 15 percent, and sales were flat. Yeah, and yet there we have it with the share price. You know, the share price like having good momentum and going up and up and up. And anyone who bought it six months ago is laughing. I mean, that was the trade. I think it's fair to say I certainly didn't <laughs> didn't get in on it at all. And and maybe it has more juice to it. But you know, with the retail sales, like with some of these individual better companies, we're seeing not as bad as expected kind of results. Yeah, you got to take the wins, right? Like it. It really could have been a lot worse. So it's it's yeah, encouraging. The, I guess the surprising thing is just the all time high for the share price at the same time, right? So it's it's that's, um, that's down results and an all time high. So, but yeah, I mean, not necessarily unjustified. Again, like it had been it had been treading water for quite a while, and I think probably it's more like this perception that it can shrug off anything. This like is, I think that this if, is if JB it, that you're talking about. Just JB, for yeah. who, who yeah, got confused there. It's probably just a sense that they can navigate anything. It's probably what I imagine is, you know, driving that change of the kind of mental model people apply to to put it on all time yep. high versus where it was, you know, eighteen months ago. Yep. Yeah, it's like you would have thought it's such a competitive category, but like there they are, like yeah, I reckon you're right. It's just like, you know, it starts being people like, oh, this is a quality retailer and up it goes. But I think it's mm. kind of correct anyway. Oh, consistent, I still, I still consistently above 30% return on equity, right? Like a staircase like yeah. earnings growth. It just, it is, it is an absolutely phenomenal retailer. Yeah. The problem yeah. with retailers, like, it's not even a problem, but I just think retailers, you need a mental, like, and this is what I struggle if I'm going to be like, writing about them and stuff like that what i really want is find things that you can just back for like 10 years and and never get out but i think with retailers probably at least the temptation for me is to try and trade it more like there's a cycle blah 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 mm-hmm. but yeah. but then at the same time there are these quality retailers that just do keep on going and and they're yeah. the ones i guess you really want to own i think i mentioned it on the pod before and this is going back many years but i i was always a against JB in the sense that whenever I went in there, I went in there a lot and it was always crowded and somehow I missed that signal. But what did catch what did catch my eye? CDs? <laughs> Why are the CDs? Was there CDs and DVDs everywhere? It was like, how are you selling this kind of stuff? And I just I think with what it is is that the the consumer demand for technology, you know, be that phones, tablets, computers, TVs, that it is such like of the discretionary spend, like right up the top is a high priority. It's such a it is a lot of a lot of us very highly value our technology and they've just done it so well with the in-store experience and the cost per square meter and all the inventory like everything top to bottom they have just done it so incredibly well and managed to evolve to that changing consumer demand because guess what new tech gadgets come out all the time they're selling drones and stuff there now i completely miss that and that's mm. That uh, for those that did see it congratulations yeah and it's trust right they, 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 the whole model is you don't understand technology this mid-20s person does they'll, they'll talk to you and tell you what laptop you should buy for your kids or whatever like that's yeah. if you look at the conversations that are happening that's like 90% of the conversations have you ever had a bad customer experience in JB like I, no. I never have they've no, no, always no. been yeah. excellent yeah they're pretty tight it's definitely like that would be kind of dividend stock that I'd consider anyway moving on so we had a suggestion from a listener Oz Richard on Twitter 
And he suggested we take a look at Close the Loop Group, which is essentially a a company that's in the recycling industry, in particular, I think, electronics are their their main game. Have you guys had a look at this at all? And any high-level thoughts before I delve into some of the specifics? I looked at an IPO and it did really well after that. I didn't buy it. So it was like one of the better performing, particularly of that period that it came on. I didn't really like, when I look at the economics of what what they do, it's just, it's a very, it's a very tight margin game very low margin game and just kind of recycling generally is uh, it's not a great industry i guess i I don't really like the industry fact dynamics of it it's kind of like how just how marginal a lot of a lot of recycling is i I think you can get it when there's some government kind of incentives or structures that force it to happen but a lot of recycling is super marginal like you know it's often cheaper to bury bottles than to recycle them and just the idea that you're getting a product a waste product and making money off it sounds really good until you think of how hard it is to do all the work and the it's more like manufacturing or something, like a low margin manufacturing. But they actually did reasonably well out of the gate. I think they've come back off a bit more recently. They seem to be back trading where they were. So yeah, that was my kind of high level look at close the loop when it IPO'd. Matt, what's the if you if you know what what was sort of the growth drivers? I, I assume it's like acquisitions and expansion. Is it is it? Yeah, they have point? been acquiring stuff. Because yeah. organic growth is hard in that space too. I mean, I'm not familiar, overly familiar with the industry, but I imagine like if you're listing and you're looking for cheaper capital, you you're it's a it's a. So so the most recent result included the full impact of three acquisitions that they'd made, and you know their their revenues, I guess, tracking ahead of guidance. I think is the point that they're trying to make. They had 106 million. Point two. They've upgraded the full year FY2024 guidance from 44 million to 46 million. Now that's the first thing I, I worry about because I'm like, oh, I don't think Abita is actually relevant for this kind of extremely capital intensive business. You know, they've got they're physically moving stuff around and having some, you know, specific processes. So obviously they do have very, very real depreciation, etc. So I don't think a bit uh, other than, you know, maybe that's what the bank cares about because they just want to know if you can pay pay the interest on the loan. But I don't, as investors, wouldn't really use that as a valuation tool. I think where I come back with this is, and the reason that I guess I'd avoided it is I've got no problem with this kind of business. It's just the kind of business I'd buy on a dividend yield. You know, we've just talked about JB Hi-Fi. That's not exactly like the sexiest growth business either. That's also got slim margins. And they really showing how you can have a slim margin kind of business that can be good but that's a dividend yield company you know you're getting if you buy the shares in that your trailing dividend yield anyway is a little bit more after franking credits than what you'd get in the bank so i think that's the kind of thing you want to be compared like that's to me the obvious thing with something like close the loop it's like yeah yeah this this totally sounds like something i'd invest in but what's the divi yield and they're not there yet so profit up good to see i would i would look at profit that was profit up was about to about 5 million. So if you, you you just doubled that and run rated it, that'd be 10 million. Market cap, 180 million, I think it is. So maybe 18 times on it. This is very back of the napkin stuff. But yeah, so it doesn't scream like obvious buy to me. But at the same time, is if this business started paying a dividend, so proving, because the dividend's the ultimate proof in the pudding, as long as they're not also like, you know, you can sometimes companies unwisely pay a dividend when they can't really afford to. But assuming there was a dividend they could afford and assuming I was then getting a decent yield on that, I'd consider it uh, pretty good. 
and 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 maybe that's on the horizon because if you look at the cash flow from this half they did generate free cash flow in this half so that's interesting let's see if they can get it for the full year i would like this to be a, a, an attractive option because it would be kind of feel good if i was like making money out of out of recycling and i think if it ever gets to that point then there'll probably be quite a few people that think like me and and it, and it might get a bit of a premium for it yeah but yeah in the meantime i need to see that dividend yeah i, I can see that as being a potential driver i'm like i'm sure that's what the bull case a component of it at least is is this esg drive i mean they make mention of the hp circular economy emphasis uh program that they've gotten the emphasis they put on that kind of stuff and you know whatever you think of that kind of stuff if enough big companies and they get enough contracts sort of going in that direction and virtue signaling with all of that kind of stuff it could be it could be a bit of a tailwind so you know i, I wouldn't i wouldn't rule it out but yeah as as a newly listed company i'd also want a little bit more water under the bridge maybe just to sort of see that that things are, are going in the right direction yeah i think it can it can get scale benefits if you get really big it's like it's mm. more like i think of it like a packaging business or something yeah. like that you know like yeah. it doesn't seem like a great business but it can become quite attractive as claude says it's like you earn a you can earn above your cost of capital on potentially like ending up being large slums of capital. It's not going to be like a huge grower, a huge return. But yeah, I think it, I think it can work. Particularly if it's hard for competitors to sort of set up and build that scale. Yeah, because it's that collection yeah. network is where the because yeah. a lot of the cost is collection, right? And the relationships to have it and the scale. Yeah. Like, yeah, you get big enough so that HP wants to work with you because you've got the scale to work with them, kind of thing. Or yeah, for all these yeah. guys, exactly, exactly. Like just a growing distribution network that's a little bit bigger, it can be a sustainable competitive advantage. It's not a deep and wide moat. You could think of it as a, as a shallow, yeah, a, a shallow moat, but it's still there. You know, yeah. and, and maybe you could think of it as even a shallow that wide, wide moat. Some company that's very big could easily walk through it. No worries. But smaller companies are going to have a, have a trouble. Like it's very hard if you're starting up from zero to just replicate mm-hmm. a distribution network. If you're already a big company that has warehouses and, and maybe some other adjacent distribution network, then you probably can encroach on that space pretty easily. Yeah, that's good framing. I wonder if uh, just general commodity costs could be a factor there as well when it's when the cost recovery well, you know the the amount that they can recycle and produce material for relative to the cost of mining it fresh you know there's, there's it does make be- a big difference yeah so that's where stuff like i just remember a few years ago digging into glass bottles and how they at a certain point started just being buried they weren't processing them anymore because it was so it was because virgin glass became so cheap so at the cheap. time yep. so yeah that 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 can be an effect it depends on how they've structured the contracts whether they're paid a margin or like a fixed cost blah 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 but yeah mm-hmm. i think that that's legitimately something to consider and as i guess a side note like the, some of those things can pay off over the long run like kind of all the rare earths i don't know if you track that like there's a lot of rare earths where people had just buried them when they pulled them out of the mine for years and now they've just now they're actually valuable. So yep. stuff like that can. It's not crazy and stupid necessarily to bury them. <laughs> I guess yeah. that's what I'm saying for comes yeah, yeah. valuable in future. Cool. All right. I think that was all that we had to chat through. Do we have some what did you want to do, Claude? Do you want to do some gratitude? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. All right, Andrew, I hope you prepared for this, but I'll go. <laughs> I hadn't until you just said it. I'm trying to think of yeah, something you got, different. You've got a minute to think. I'll string <laughs> something it out Something different for from Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. Can't be Bitcoin every time, mate. <laughs> All time highs. Woo. <laughs> Well, I'm going to say four things today. First of all, my new focus for this year, since I haven't been having that much fun, uh, is being healthy, uh, hanging out more with friends and seeing live music. So that's outdoors live music, by the way. But that's three things I'm thankful for. 
had a bit of that lately. Mm-hmm. So feeling so feeling more positive as a result of that. So thank you. And also um, the other thing that I have to chuck in, and I can't believe it's taken me this long, is trees. I love trees. <laughs> I love. I sometimes I actually hug them. Like there was a beautiful tree with a big low bow. It was just the perfect hugging height. Give it a good hug the other night in the botanic gardens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I love trees. So that's my ones for today. Very good. What do you got, Andrew? Oh, gosh, I was hoping you'd go. <laughs> it always comes back to me. I, I, I rail at the little things, but the big things I'm very grateful for, like the health and family, that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm, yep. very, I'm very fortunate. I'm very well, you've never said that before on this pod, so we'll, we'll take I know, it. Yeah, mate, I, we feel like you're, you're making progress from this therapy, <laughs> yeah. mate. Well done. Well done. Good on you. That's a step forward. Good on okay. you, mate. <laughs> yeah. No, I'd say I'm grateful for catching up, uh, catching up with Claude the other day. We caught up in person, went to a went to a concert. It was uh, yeah, very good. So yeah, the ability to do that, catching up with friends. Haven't uh, I think everyone when you get into like kids' life, you uh, you go into your own little family unit a bit. So yeah, you do. Yeah. Superstar DJs, here we go. <laughs> All right, should we, should we close it there? If anyone has any questions, hit us on Twitter at Baby Giants Pod. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye.